So you get emotionally exhausted if you're really present in it because you're holding space for, say, 15 people max. You didn't know them on Monday. By Friday, they feel like your family. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. You're waiting for the next workshop. And the human part of that really gets to you at some point. Honestly, on a personal level, I, I get tired, really, really tired. A day like this, I'm still reflecting on the things I heard. And I have to go home and just think, there's a part of me that feels so sad and sorry for these guys that it's, it's, it's their first time to talk about these things. Kumakucha is a program to help people process conflicts and trauma and to craft new and more positive narratives for themselves. It's running in communities in coastal Kenya and in Nairobi, bringing in people who are affected by gang violence, by police brutality, and by a whole range of, of adverse personal circumstances. I do recommend checking out the Greenstring Network's channel on YouTube for some of their short participant videos in this regard. And obviously they speak much more eloquently to their own circumstances than I can. But in this episode, we hear from two of the people involved. Onyango is a accomplished poet and a storyteller, and you'll hear that very quickly. He's been very open about trauma in his own life and how that informs his work. Kiltuna is a program manager who is wrapping her head in a very pragmatic way around some very tough questions of design and delivery. She's also building on a bit of a family legacy in this space. I was struck in these conversations by the necessity of this perspective in the peace building world, where we are very focused on developing processes and institutions and not so much on how individuals can manage to thrive in the imperfect world that we actually have. It's a very unique perspective, very unique take on things. So please do enjoy this one. Place I, I usually start these is pretty simple. If you meet someone socially and they ask you what you do with your time, what you do for a living. How do you explain that? Well, I usually say I help people process their pain by telling stories of things that happened to them. Because in our work, when we're talking about people, people mostly don't understand how to translate trauma. But if you told them painful experiences mm. and storytelling, then they can start connecting. A lot of this is uh, maybe things people have gone through, but I'm not healed um, from you know mm. um, or experiences they've never really talked to anybody about and they've never gotten safe spaces to to express them and these things have hindered them from exploring their lives or thriving you know just uh, affecting their relationships mm. their workspaces and that kind of thing we we work with different groups mm -hmm. um, currently we're working with the kenyan police we've been working with uh, human rights defenders as well and just community members who come from marginalized groups. So you're talking anything from people who've experienced child rape mm -hmm. 
to um, working in, this, in the police service and finding it very difficult uh, dealing with dead bodies mm-hmm. or you know being the first responder in, uh, in a, an accident scene or a crime scene to childhood trauma of uh, you know uh, growing up in a violent home or witnessing an accident and you didn't have time to process it so it's it's a it's a collaboration of complex things because by the time these guys mostly they're adults they have a lot of experiences they've not shared and they've never gotten places to talk about these issues so mm. the way our program is developed um is to get them internalize into themselves and say okay this is a component of my life that affected me in this way i have a story for this this is a, another component of my life that affected me th- that way i have a story for this mm-hmm. so it's this not a linear kind of experience it's like you know all complex all over the place and then but it takes you back to to you how how healthy is your brain how in touch are you with yourself how balanced do you feel your emotions are when you say they have a story about it what do you mean So for example I'll I'll give you my example. I grew up in a very violent home. My dad was um, he struggled with alcoholism and he he basically was very violent towards my mom and myself. Um and it was a very difficult home to live in and so as a first born growing up in the space I was in in a very patriarchal society and community there was barely anybody I could open up to around my pain nobody understood my depression when I was 16 years old um and I felt suicidal at that time of my life I couldn't explain these issues mm-hmm. people were very oblivious about this information mm-hmm. uh, ignorant even to some extent so I kept a lot of these things with me for so long for so many years mm. um and the years to come when I was becoming a young adult I still didn't have space to talk about them and so I had things I wanted to to express but they were coming out maybe in like unhealthy coping mechanisms so stories in this form would mean getting a space to to tell the experience mm. and what it made me feel and being affirmed through it that mm. maybe if it wasn't even my fault that whatever happened happened mm. and uh expressing the damages it had on my life and how it reflects on me today um and being taken through processes of understanding this is these are the effects of what happens to me and now I can even develop newer stories for the, the new information I have right so those are like in basic form what we take you know the participants through mm. yeah and how do you better equip people to do that both to tell the story as it is and and to develop you know a new one or a right. a, a more optimistic one I right. guess so in our workshops people sit in a circular sort of arrangement and with our material the well-being and practice material we are dealing with the individual and we also break down parts of the brain that are affected by trauma and what happens to you when you're traumatized we use a lot of images talk about how they translate these images 
on a personal, individual, or collective level. And uh, we also take them through certain tools like breathing exercises where they learn more about um, how to self-regulate their emotions when you know they are going through different challenges in life, mm. just to get them making better decisions about their day-to-day activities. Mm. The goal really here is to help these individuals be healthy within them because most of them come feeling very defeated about a lot of things in their lives because of the a lot of the violent systems they grew up around or even working at the moment um, and their feeling of hopelessness that they're not they don't have the power to change anything and so because of this pressure and uh, which is constant and it, it it's very it's prolonged the feeling of hopelessness also starts becoming collective. And when it's like that and it spreads out in communities, then mm. it's it's harder for them to create. It's harder for them to have healthy relationships. It's harder for them to even protest, you know? Yeah. So what's your, your role in facilitating that process? You help people to articulate what has happened and then craft a a changed or, or a new narrative in some way. Mm-hmm. Is that a physical product? Do they do they draw what they want it to look like? So we have different components of the training. Mm-hmm. We, we talk about relationships. We talk about um, well-being and awareness, trauma awareness. We talk mm-hmm. about uh, the brain. We talk about security in different mm-hmm. forms, uh, gender security, personal security, economic security. Um, so these different components that we have in the program take them through these discussions through the images that we have. And we basically just have stories in between that that help them see where what affects them and um and 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 what they can see through the images. Can they see themselves in the images? Can they see themselves through these components that we're talking about on particular days that have affected their lives either directly or indirectly? Mm. And so in the beginning, it's a little slow for most people because they're just trying to, to get to understand what is this all about. But usually by the time you're getting to the third day, the stories have already started coming out and the participants now feel safe to, to discuss, you know, and to, and to tell their very deeply personal stories. And by the last day, most times people feel different about themselves. So. The new narrative is really about you know more about yourself. You feel you've discovered the things you are struggling with that you are unaware of. Um, but because of this new information you've just gotten, you you sort of have a new resolve, mm. right? Um, and that's what we mostly look at so that in whatever groups we are working with, they can start mobilizing each other now and mm. say, can we take this information back home or in our workplaces and say, okay, this is maybe how we need to start treating each other from hence um, mm-hmm. and, and um, you know, just create better spaces for people. Mm-hmm. There's something I really believe that all of us, we were looking for space. Mm-hmm. And from my personal discoveries, a lot of people who've grown up traumatized have lacked space to express themselves. And because of that lack of space, they feel they didn't have options. So they had to resort to other ways of surviving. Or if those ways did not exist, some people ended up, you know, taking away their lives, um, or resorting to crime or 
you know, struggling with addictions or that kind of thing. And so this program is actually designed to help people get space within themselves and understand what that space means so that they can offer it to others so that they could even start imagining what it is to understand other people because mm. when you feel misunderstood it's also very difficult to for you to understand other people the the basic tension or difficulty in a way must be that you're creating a space for that kind of reflection but when they leave that space they're going back into yeah. an environment in which the same yeah. stresses might exist and how do you approach that with with people? You must get that feedback a lot, right? When I leave this room, I'm still going to have this problem. It's still going to be difficult. My son's still going to be dead. My, you know, whatever whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. These problems are still going to exist when I leave the room. A lot of the problems we are trying to solve are humongous. They've been here for the longest time, and they are structural problems at the base, yeah. right? You can't say you're going to change one individual and they're going to change a whole town or that kind of thing, but. For me, the biggest tools of change are human resource. When you empower the people, it's, it spreads on its own, mm. right? And these people are attached to other people. They don't work in isolation. They are attached to other people. The, the power of this program is in, in such a way that when I go back to where I came from before I came to the workshop, mm. I have new information to somebody who can listen to me. And it may not necessarily be at home, it may not necessarily be in the workplace, it could be somewhere else where I feel I can exist. Because a lot of the guys who come barely have relationships at work as well. We give them like an imagination that you can create friendships and relationships that can work for you despite the difficult things you're going through. To just help people conceptualize the idea that it's not always all going down, that they, they actually have some sense of power even within themselves to create, like to, 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 to light another candle elsewhere, is like that slow way of changing the structures. But we also make them aware that it's not going to change in a week or two weeks. Even themselves, the behaviors they used to have, they're not going to just go away. Mm. You mentioned that you facilitate an online platform as well, which yeah. must work slightly differently, I guess. You know, having gone through depression myself mm-hmm. and battled post-traumatic stress disorder yeah. and anxiety, mm-hmm. one of the deepest, d- deepest deficiencies I saw was just how difficult it is to access therapy mm-hmm. here and probably anywhere in the world. Most places, yeah. Right. It's, it's not easy at all. It's expensive. Mm. It's quite unsustainable, especially for the kind of issue mental health is here. The need is huge. Mm. The demand is huge, but the practitioners are really, really few and far in between. And actually right now, as we speak, we're lucky we're in Nairobi. Mm. It's the capital city. The further you get outside town, the harder it is to even speak about these things because the cultural beliefs that come with it, the religious beliefs that come with it, it make it even harder to talk mm-hmm. about trauma, to talk about depression, to talk about PTSD. So I figured I needed to help people have some kind of space where they could talk about these issues. Also as a way of beating stigma, because for me, 
I love what stories do. Stories mean people are courageous to talk about what they've been through and what they're overcoming and what they're struggling with. And stigma wants to silence that. Why? Because everybody wants to be faceless when they're talking about mental health. They, want to, they don't want to be seen. They don't they want to be anonymous. But I'm thinking until we put we start putting faces to these stories, stigmatization is still going to be here, right? So I just, you know, I made a call out online and told guys I'm opening up a WhatsApp group on, and, uh, you know, we're going to be talking about mental health and using our stories to, you know, hold space for each other. And for people who need further help, we'll have, you know, volunteers, psychiatrists who mm-hmm. can help out with that. And I'm working with partner organizations who help people at subsidized prices mm-hmm. and sometimes even pro bono to sort of just help people, you know, cope with the situation. So, you know, 200 people got back to me. They told me I want to be in there and mm. they just talk to each other. Now they are friends. Now they meet up for coffee and, you know, take photos, send in the group. Hey guys, we're here together, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah. Um, and some people never speak, but they're just, they just, they're listening to, mm-hmm. you know, the conversations that are going on. Um, and so that reduces the alien alienation that comes with battling mental health issues and sometimes even being caregivers because we don't talk about caregivers enough Uh, but the bigger picture is to have some kind of social support for these conversations Mm -hmm. and to come back to the idea that we really need each other right because this this the stigmatization and just lack of understanding from your surrounding environment may isolates people a lot so if you have somewhere where you can actually just Talk about what you're going through, what you're feeling, and somebody else from somewhere else. You probably never met them, but in some in a group you trust, mm-hmm. um, tells you, okay, I'm here. You can talk to me. Mm-hmm. You sort of feel better. And this is this is all fairly heavy subject matter, and for you, it's sure. it was was personal and, and remains personal subject matter. What's the most difficult part of this for you? I, this must put. Yeah. Tremendous demands on people who are facilitating Definitely. this. Oh, man. You know, uh, we hear very deeply touching, horrific stories. For most of these people, it's their first ever time to mm. talk about most of these things. So you get emotionally exhausted if you're really present in it yeah. because you're holding space for, say, 15 people max. And uh, for five days, you're with these guys. You didn't know them on Monday. By Friday, they feel like your family. And then all of a sudden, they're gone. Mm-hmm. You're waiting for the next workshop. And the human part of that really gets to you at some point. Um, honestly, on a personal level, and you know, I, I tell the team about this, I, I get tired, really, really tired. A day like this, I'm still reflecting on the things I heard. And I have to go home and just think there's a part of me that feels so sad and sorry for these guys that it's, it's, it's their first time to talk about these things. Um, and that they've held on to so much they didn't have control over. Um, and still thinking about, so now when they go back where they're coming from, how is it going to be? You know, cause it's still a new program. We are learning a lot of things along the way trying to develop a system for debriefing for the facilitators mm. such that uh, when you finish your week um maybe you're gonna rest for the weekend 
you know, we develop a system where maybe the next the next week facilitators could just come in together to, to debrief and just share what's going on, how do they feel, what was the experience like for them. So definitely you do get worked up. And that's why even for me, and um, I'm really big on this, like your support system outside work is so important. When you're going home, the people you're talking to, your space, the people you, you hang out with, play such a huge role. I mean, so far, I think we are doing fairly okay. It's not easy, honestly. Mm. And I'm only praying that as we keep growing and building, that you know things are just going to get better and better. Mm. Just quickly on the police aspect, you must get some interesting comments and feedback from people when you yeah, describe that work, no? From my own mother, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. I mean, um, with the history we have with police in our country and what's even currently happening, this relationship between civilians and, and police. Well, even, even this week. Yeah. <laughs> As we're sitting exactly, here, it's been a big, like, it's been a big it's deal. It's been yeah. crazy. We've been having, you know, uh, a lot of extrajudicial killings happening in a few protests here and there. And previously, when I didn't know anything about the police, mm. I, I had the anger. Um, I think anger is also different because right now that I know more, I'm still angry at that system but i understand a bit more of what's happening within mm. yeah but not everybody has that privilege mm. right and so for me you know when i was telling my people that i'm working with police which i never even thought i'd ever do ever in my life there's that fear that comes first you know Mm. Um, but because they know me, they get intrigued, like, okay, you, police, what's going on? Because I'm known as an activist out there. They, these people, we, we protest against them in the streets. Um, so it's been a very interesting balance. And I've, I've been, because I write stories. So I write about these experiences that I have here um, and balance them with what's really happening out there and still explain to people how systemic these issues are because that's the part we miss. Mm. We see, you know, for us, police is the symbol of the uniform. It's not the person, mm -hmm. you see. Because if you meet, if, if you dressed in security uniform right now, mm. there's a feeling I'd get. But now you're just casually dressed up and I'm, I'm chilled, you know? So it's just, it's the symbol. It's the symbol of the uniform that changes the, the perception, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and that's what we've had to investigate. What is it about the symbol that makes people feel angry? Mm. Um, what made this symbol what it is today? Um, what are its roots? What is its history? Mm. And that's what I'm much intrigued about. That's what I write about, you know, going back way back to colonial days and what home guards were used for and what kind of system we inherited from the British mm. that went on to, 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 um, to be carried out for, to the Kenyan people all these years. Mm. Um, so it's a very interesting balance. Um, myself, Sometimes we go to those offices, I'm still freaking out because <laughs> everybody's so uptight and mm. serious and they're in their uniforms and stuff like that. And they're big officers and, you know, 90% you're meeting men who mm. are just so, you know, their faces like they could kill you anytime. 
but sometimes really very friendly. Mm. So I guess what this process has helped me is also just humanize the police. Mm. I'm talking to children, people who come from families whose fathers are police officers, whose mothers are police officers, and they're telling us about their experiences growing up, knowing that, you know, their dad or mom is in the service and what that is like for them outside that it's crazy so for me i think because we do not know each other's stories it separates us more mm. um and what i'm helping people start to process is the reality of both sides um and of course that looks like a lifetime work <laughs> yeah. because it's it's crazy was there anything that i haven't asked about that you wanted to mention that's important to capture i think probably to be what i anticipate what what the future of this work looks like yeah absolutely because we are very few people who understand how the brain works and mm-hmm. i mean when i started getting in touch with the information around mental health because that's the angle i came with here i felt cheated as a person that nobody ever made me understand my mind mm-hmm. as a child I never went to any school where somebody taught me this is how your mind works. Mm. Nobody. Everybody was out there drumming information into my head for me to sit down for a paper and then they forgot who I was for the next level. Some other teacher was waiting on the other side, you know, to get me through another system and then another teacher after that. And then when I got out, there was a boss waiting in an office. And before I know it, I'm married. Before I know it, I have kids. And they're waiting for this father to show up in their house lovingly and caringly and provide for them and do this and do that. But I don't even understand myself. It's a great disservice to humanity. You know, I think kids, we need to start teaching kids what the mind is. Mm-hmm. how powerful the mind is because they can do anything marvelous things with their minds right i'm really hoping we're going to get to that point um but for me the one on ones we are having here is so much hope mm-hmm. because this one person that gets out of here has influence to five people out mm-hmm. there and another so this is the network that's growing people are getting more curious about who they are they're getting more curious about am i really in the place i want to be is this do i enjoy this work do i enjoy my marriage mm. <laughs> you know have i been a good father are there things about my parents i misunderstood you know such simple pertinent questions for me that's that's the success story i want it for africa i want it for the whole world mm. people have so much conflict within themselves and a lot of that still goes back to the systems they grow up in that they they are not aware about and so we just imagine this is who we've always been so we accept it like the way it is but it's mm. it's not true it's just things that have been drummed on us and we thought that was the end right mm. one question i do ask everybody and you strike me as someone who's very has come to be very reflective didn't start that way and there was a process a structured process around that but was there also were there also reference points in terms of a a, a book or a mental figure or 
sort of pivotal influences yes. for you that are worth mentioning? Yes, definitely. Um, part of my schooling was happened in Uganda. Mm-hmm. Um, I did my A levels there when I finished O level in Kenya. And uh, I remember going to this library because I loved poetry and literature so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I meet I meet uh, poetry from from Black American poets. And then I meet Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. and um, I'm struck by the simplicity and yet so much complexity of the topics she's she's, she's talking about. Mm-hmm. And then I come to read her memoirs, um, and her story was very similar to mine. It hit home so hard because mm-hmm. it felt like she was holding my hands through the U.S. somewhere. It felt like I really knew her so personally, and it was the first time. I knew somebody else in another part of the world has gone through the same things I've been through. And I think she's been part of my base, even as a writer. I mean, the way she expressed herself, the way she got people together, the way she stood for justice, the mm-hmm. way she, she expressed love, um, even through her own pains, the way she didn't grow up living in that bitterness of what happened to her, the way she wanted the world to be a better place. Mm. And of course, um, the other greatest person is my mom <laughs> because of just holding us together through the darkest yeah. days. You know? um, I write a lot about her uh, because a lot of our mothers broke their backs to mm. keep our families intact. But we don't write about them enough. They're not world leaders. Mm. They're not out there. Um, and nobody's telling their stories. Mm. And I feel like we are their voices now. We are changing the world through our moms. The second half of this episode is with Kaltuna. She's Somali Kenyan and like Onyango came to this with a very personal story, which we get to towards the end. We open by discussing the kinds of trauma and mental health issues that are prevalent in the Kenyan communities that they're working with. Well, it depends on which community we're talking about. When we go to Kisumu, we did a little the issue at hand over there is mostly political traumatization, the gang violence, and then there's a lot of police brutality. Mm-hmm. On the coast, police brutality, CBE, gang violence. In Nairobi, CBE, gang violence, and police brutality. And that is in Majengo, in, uh, near Madare, where you went, not far. And then in Mombasa, in Kisauni and Likoni. So when you go to the community, they're like, we're not the problem, the police are the problem. You, this program, take it to the police. We don't need it as much. How does that play out from the community's perspective? So in, when we say CVE or countering violent extremism and, and we use these sort of phrases, but mm-hmm. the, we look at the lived experiences of these specific communities. So let's say Lukoni, for example. Yeah. What kind of experiences do they have or what kind of encounters do they have that would come up in the course of your work? In Likoni, there's a military base right behind Zimtongwe area. Mm-hmm. So incidences of police would come to the, to the villages around Likoni and would just raid 
several houses at night, or um, just rough up a group of boys that are hanging out in what we call the Mascani or the base. Mm-hmm. They hang out from this time. Crossing the ferry from one side of town to the other side becomes an issue. And then disappearances, a lot of disappearances, a lot of killings. And I know this is not true in all parts of the coast, probably even many parts of the coast, but there is a certain amount of quote-unquote radicalization that goes on or suspicion of travel back and forth from Somalia mm-hmm. in particular. Is that a live issue in this context? It is, but then it's, it morphs, it changes in, in Mombasa specifically because when countering violent extremists, incidences around that mm. are high, gang violence is low, mm-hmm. like activities around that. And then when cops are out looking for people who are associated with acts of terrorism, mm. then they will look for gang members and they will move from either Kisauni side and move to Likoni and then move to Kwale mm-hmm. or move to Malindi. So they have their own ways of uh, shifting the activities. They're like right now, I think gang violence has been higher in Mombasa than CVE. Meaning people have uh, negative violence experiences as between themselves and gangs, or gangs have obviously violent encounters with police, or it's sort of a triangle, I guess. It's a triangle, yeah. 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 Some gangs will kill cops. Mm-hmm. And, but then also in Mombasa, they've been killing uh, members of the community. So just down the road from where I live, a shopkeeper was killed around like 6.30 in the evening. But his keys and his shop was, nothing was raided, nothing was taken away. He was mm. just hacked to death. Nobody understands. And then um, the, uh, the governor would call upon security actors to, you know. Do something. To do something. And then that's when all the raids happen. So it's yeah. just a cycle. Um, yeah. A circle rather than a triangle. <laughs> yeah, a circle. <laughs> The point of entry for you guys then, and you mentioned neuroscience as an element, individuals obviously go through these experiences and, and are traumatized in individual ways. And your work focuses very much at that individual level in terms of how people process and deal with and move forward in life, I guess. Could you walk me through what that looks like? What we try to do is already tap into uh, individuals that are already existing within the community that everyone goes to. So the grandmothers, the aunties, that when you're stressed out that you go to and you're like, hey, I'm going through this. Mm-hmm. Um, can you help me process? Do you have any advice? How do I handle this situation? So let's say we're trying to start a project in Mombasa. First is to make connections with the local governments that are already mm-hmm. there. So it, it could be the county government of Mombasa, for example, and then get um, a memorandum of understanding going mm-hmm. because you don't just want to go in there and go in blind. And then we try and see what, what partners we can work with. What are they doing? So we try to establish networks between local governments, the civil society organizations that are already there, mm-hmm. and the community-based organizations as well. So from there, now start identifying those resilient individuals, mm-hmm. the people who, regardless of whatever violence, they seem to have their head on straight somehow. Mm-hmm. And now we give them the materials and the tools. So at that point, may, we may have already adapted our materials to that context and worked with people from that context. 
and then send them out to the community to go and identify 12 to 15 participants. Um, and then what they do is that they meet for two hours a week, every week. And we have created this curriculum for them. They use images, they use storytelling, and um, we don't want to make the atrocities that they're facing like pretty. <laughs> you don't want to delete the blood on the paintings. You don't want to be like, mm. oh, we don't want to... Uh, show images of domestic abuse, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. These are real things that people are suffering from. Um, because I've seen people try and make people's pain. Or say that it's, oh, you can't, you can't show them these images. It's too graphic. Oh, you can't, yeah. you can't broach the subject. It's only for psychologists. Oh, like, you guys are in, in the wrong field. You guys, you should not be touching this. But what we hear time and time again from the people who go through this process is that if it w if the images were flat, if they didn't communicate what was real, then it wouldn't take them to those places of transformation, mm -hmm. you know, of having uncomfortable conversations and mm -hmm. thinking of things, of their views being challenged by other people and um, having to reflect and think about things differently. Um, and yeah, I think, I think we're different in that sense. And what I've seen with people who try to do trauma healing or work in a line is that they they almost want to erase that pain and mm. then have that discussion. And you and you you can't you're not gonna go anywhere. And how does that sort of individual level of change relate to the very real social challenges that we were discussing? What happens in their communities or what do you want to see happen in their communities? The hope is that their individual healing can inspire collective healing. I've seen it work in the sense that when I've seen people get that aha moment and start healing themselves, mm -hmm. they end up wanting to heal other people. It's almost like a good news, like mm -hmm. the Bible. And then they start questioning things around them. I've seen an old woman who was like 80 years old chase young boys who are causing a ruckus outside a polling station because they said that the they said that there are other community members that are not allowed to vote at this polling station so she stood out there with the constituent and she said like everyone has the right to vote at any polling station hmm. so it's those kind of things that you wouldn't expect somebody who's at that age who barely speaks english hmm. to be that well versed in the constitution of india i'm not even that knowledgeable at all their green zone has been expanded people that would snap quickly have more of a, more patience. They're able to then sit with people and help them understand where they're coming from and mm -hmm. help them, like, you know, have a dialogue with instead of a fight. And that helps inspire a lot of change. I've mm -hmm. seen, yeah. And some of these, some of the participants are also, I mean, nobody's a pure victim, of course, but some of them are more active protagonists in these kinds of social problems, right? Um, I know that some gang members, former gang members, for example, does the process look different for that kind of, of person? I mean, uh, I guess they may still be going to their grandmother for advice, notwithstanding that they're in a, in a gang, but would you describe that at all differently for people who are on that point of the triangle? Yeah, uh, yeah, we worked with one in mm. Mombasa, um, and he, his story was so incredible. Initially, because that was my first experience, of being or feeling like an outsider mm. in a place where I felt like I was an insider. Like in Kenya, the place I've lived the longest is in Mombasa. That's the place I call home. Mm -hmm. So to 
go into a space and introduce this program um, and try and get partners and try and recruit like community facilitators that could hold space for mm. community members and to be told like you're an outsider you mm. are not one of us was like hit me in the face and the person who told me this was uh, this kid um, who was just leaving all the gang members <laughs> in Likoni he would kill people he was mm. just he was on the actually on the most wanted list and uh, our community facilitator Monamisi and I would like be on the phone for hours because I would be in Nairobi and she would be in Mombasa and say what would we do for, the, for those guys it's different because you have to rally support from a lot of stakeholders so you mm-hmm. have to rally support from like other civil society organizations we had to get support from the county commissioner of, mm. Ken- of Mombasa and be like, and even work with the police and be like, hey, this kid is rehabilitating. We know he may slip up and, mm. you know, he may do a revenge here and there, but we really want, like, <laughs> we, and he did, he actually during, while he was facilitating at some point, police killed somebody from his, from his gang and yeah. he left the session, left the session, walked out and killed someone. That's how, what happened. But then, like, our, first, our, our project officer really, really, like, put her, like, yeah. everything on the line. And this kid went from that to, I don't know what epiphany he had. I think he ended up realizing that he doesn't love himself. Everyone else is leaving him, his wife, his kids, nobody. Everyone is afraid of him. And he said, do I want to, do I want to live this life when everyone is afraid of me? How old? Uh, he is, I would say, early 30s. This yeah, last year. This right? last year, yeah. This is 2019. Now, <laughs> now he's like the, he's one of the, he's so transformed. He's so different. Hey, it's amazing. What happened is that when we got done with one round, we sat with him and we reviewed and we said, Hey, we know this incident happened. We're willing to give you a chance, but we, I don't think we can ask you to hold space for other people because you're not in that space yet. Um, so therefore he had to go through it and he was like, and he's like, I don't want to leave this program just because if I do, who knows what could happen to me? I could be killed by a police officer. I could be arrested and, you know, the cycle could continue. So he ended up having that realization mm. and I think dug deep and found something that could, and he ended up realizing that now he's getting more respect. He's getting more people are listening to what he has to say. Mm. And I feel like that maybe is inspiring him to stay on the path. Um, then. And I, I, I had to laugh <laughs> because, well, uh, because it is, I mean, it is, it is kind of absurd in a way, right? Like there's, there's such a cognitive dissonance there, but it does very sharply illustrate one of the obvious dilemmas with this kind of work, which is the tension between a restorative model and between the sort of conventional criminalized model. Yeah. And I wonder how you deal with that tension where people have suffered acts of violence which are obviously illegal and a violation of their rights and at some level they would want justice for that Mm -hmm. some people more than others Mm -hmm. but at the same time there's an individual need for them to move on with their lives and and process it in, in, in their own way how does one manage that tension i mean people must have a lot of anger or unmet expectations in that regard, which you can't meet, right? It must be very difficult to manage that, I would think. Yeah, it is. We cover that in our curriculum, this yeah. subject of retributive justice versus restorative justice with this 
folk tale that we share about a green leopard. And we kind of... Is, <laughs> is it short enough to share now? Yeah, so it's like, um, it's a green leopard in the forest with all the other animals. He would um, eat other animals and it was a, there was a whole thing about you can't eat other animals. The animals got fed up of all of them being killed. So I had decided, okay, let's trick this guy and mm -hmm. uh, kill him. So they took him to a river and they were like, hey, leopard, there's another leopard in town. And he's, uh, he says that he runs the show. Mm -hmm. so, and he's like, where's this guy? So they took him to the river and he saw his reflection and they threw him in the river. And the whole, the question comes in and says, do you save the leopard or do we let him go? So it always is a point of some people start of the conversation like yeah let him die and then mm -hmm. others would be like no let, let's save him and then we go into the discussion of why would we want to save and then we try and use like lived experiences and try to bring that into the realm of reality <laughs> not mm -hmm. folktale so a lot of people some of them are stuck on the guys who have made up their mind and who are not ready to have that conversation we really can't force them to be in that so. space but we can't chase them out of the circle either. We want them to be in that space to be, to, you know, and a, a reflection of somebody else mm. could inspire them to think of the scenario differently. So mm. it is, it's hard, but I don't know. We have to meet people where they are. Some people would be ready to move forward and some people may not. You touched on this briefly, and I know that Swahili culture in particular has a very sort of rich library of um, folktales and, and animal-themed <laughs> folktales in, in, in particular. Does this differ substantially between coastal Kenya and, and Nairobi? Because they are fairly distinct cultures, I would say. There is a language in common, but even that, <laughs> not necessarily, right? We try and create different stories for different contexts. Mm -hmm. Sometimes stories that we've created for, let's say, Mombasa could work in the northeast of Kenya may not necessarily work in Kisumu, so we may need to adapt a story and change it so that it can it fits the context of Kisumu. With Nairobi, it's such an urban area, mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, I think storytelling is still something that we can use across, because I think that at the end of the day, that's something that we all grew up with as Kenyans. We all grew up with our grandmothers sitting next around her, like when mm. we're all five and hearing all these folk tales and uh, stories of our ancestors. So it's just something that's ingrained. How is that for you? I mean, you described yourself as sometimes an outsider being treated as one and, and consequently feeling like one. Because you're not, to state the obvious, a, uh, a grandmother dispensing. <laughs> Wisdom, you're, I mean, the positioning matters, right? And you're coming in as uh, someone who is culturally not from quite the same circumstance. You're going to be younger and differently educated than a lot of the facilitators you're working with. Female. And in many cases, yeah, female. Uh, I'm, I'm just curious, what's the most difficult part of that? Has that been hard? And if so, how have you adapted to deal with that? Um. I wouldn't say it's challenging, it's just different. Well, I don't, I'm Somali Kenyan, so I don't identify with Somalis from Somalia. I identify as Kenyan. I've also lived in Kenya and I've also lived abroad in other cultures as well. So I have that lens. Kind of makes, makes me have an insider outsider view of Kenya. And then I remember when the, um, the Ethiopian airline, um, 
plane crashed mm. and the, the coffee shop that I go to every single day for three years, the guy was like, I'm sorry, you, you guys, this plane crashed. And I was like, no, I'm it's Kenyan and we lost more people than the Ethiopians in, on that flight. Yeah. And I'm like, it's, it's crazy to me that somebody that I've interacted, interacted with every single day for three years, mm. talked to in Swahili, said, thinks that I'm not even Kenyan. Mm. And I was like, that blows my mind. So it, I used to feel a ways about it, but then I don't feel a ways about it as much because it gives me a room to learn something mm. or to check myself and be like, okay, maybe I am an outsider. I, I maybe need to take a step back and look at things differently um, mm. or um, call someone or ask advice from someone. Um, how do I approach this situation? Sometimes I get underestimated. Sometimes people try and pull a fast one on you, mm-hmm. um, but you just have to keep your eyes open um, and also listen to the voice within. Because sometimes, and when I feel like I'm unsettled, I, I have to like sit with that and ask myself, why am I feeling unsettled? Is it my ego or is it something that um, is actually an issue? And then I try to reach out to my support system and mm-hmm. and, and be like, hey, this happened. How do I go about this? Or was this out of order? <laughs> and should I tell that person that was out of order? Do you go back and do that? Oh, yes. The, sometimes, yeah. So sometimes it is important to do yeah. that. Because, yeah. When yeah. it's necessary, yeah. Mm. But try to go about it very diplomatically. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> because you would definitely need those relationships later. So, yeah. 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 Do you do much of the group facilitation yourself? When I'm, when I visit, um, when you can. Yeah, when I can, I do. I, do. I try and visit on-site. But then also I do facilitate the leadership side of the program. And that's different from the 12-week program for the community. Yeah, in a way, I'm not saying it would be easier. In, in many ways, it's more complicated. But I think you're a, a level removed from the pain and anger and, 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 and trauma that these sessions are supposed to deal with, right? So I imagine the facilitation of one of these groups would be quite emotionally taxing yeah um, and and sometimes there must be the threat of losing control of the session entirely if people are really feeling you know aggrieved and have real loss and, and you know, pain to deal with mm-hmm. is that a big component of training and equipping people to do this i mean how how do you keep the temperature in in, in a room within the right sort of range um that's what we work with pairs so there's like one individual that handles a room of a uh, group of fifteen. Mm. So the idea is that if somebody is leading a, the discussion, the other facilitator is the one who kind of sees what the emotional temperature of the room is. If somebody mm. is deeply affected, they would probably step out with them mm-hmm. to kind of regulate them and then bring them back. Or sometimes they may even stop the entire session and just like go into a circle of sharing and reflection and debrief. The other thing that we put in place is to give our facilitators a weekly two-hour debriefing session. So they meet with their, their immediate supervisor, so the community coordinator or the project officer would sit with them and help them debrief. And, and they always rally around each other if there's an emergency that happens or if somebody breaks down. Mm. Even if a person is away, like the group is far away from where we are, technology is really helpful. So with WhatsApp mm. calls and stuff, somebody can say, hey, I need help here. I know... When we're in Sierra Leone last year, my project officer and I and Angie, our CEO, not our participant, but somebody who follows our work on Facebook, shared that he was feeling suicidal. And then facilitators on the coast end up reaching out to this person from um, 
on Facebook, on WhatsApp, and then, you know, bringing him to their house, making him, you know, sleep over there that night and have a debriefing session the next day. So mm. it's, it, it's manageable. It's manageable mm. that it's a group of people. And the idea is that we do, we hold these sessions. We don't tell um, facilitators to get participants that live like 30 kilometers away from them. So we just right where they are to get people who are around them so that in case anyone breaks within the session or after the session during the week, they can always reach out to the person around them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that and makes it make Earth be constant, be a constant process, of course. It's not a, a one-off thing of yeah. telling people how to... But it does get, it, yeah, it does get exhausting for facilitators. Like, like me, especially sometimes, because we, we don't just do facilitation of the session we also do the logistics mm. afterwards so it gets challenging because the community is ex- we have to manage the community's expectations yeah obviously none of this is easy even at a day-to-day level let alone a design level can i ask what drew you into this kind of work initially well for my own healing for my own healing i lost my mom in 2011 um, and my stepdad. So, and having grown up in Wajir, I didn't. I just. I'm now only realizing that I've suppressed a lot of memories from mm. age zero to like six or seven, and now getting flashbacks of having lived through like violence in Wajir. Mm. So there was a lot of um, so the spillover from the Somalia War in 1990. So there's a lot mm. of bandits. Um, so a lot of, I suppressed a lot of that and then a lot of other issues that I suppressed in my teenage years and now just ended up bubbling after my mom's death. So I was like, I was losing it in the States. I was like, okay, am I, is it the microaggressions that I'm feeling on the road? Cause you know, I'm, I'm black and then I'm Muslim mm-hmm. and then walking around like in Virginia with a scarf on that was just like a whole nother thing. So it's at that point, uh, I was yes. just like, I was about to lose my mind. And, of course. Yeah. So then I, found this program in Eastern Midnight University called the STAR program. And that's kind of what inspired a little bit by that mo- their model. And I went through that and I was like, wow, this is amazing. But it didn't hit home until I came to Kenya and linked up with Angie. And she was like, hey, we're starting up in Kenya. Do you kind of want to get involved with this? But when I got into the session and the sharing that was happening and the images and the stories, I think that's when I started healing and started feeling like myself again. And I also wanted to carry on my mom's a little bit of legacy because she um, was an activist um, up north in, in Wajia and kind of helped settle the conflict around um, the communities there, around uh, resources, around water, livestock in the 90s. Um, and then she also kind of was in, played a role in the in like stabilizing the country after the post-election violence so mm. that Kofi Annan could come and start the conversations with president at the time and Raila. So when she passed on in 2011, I was like, whoa, shucks, that's a loss. And also like, is this her thing going to die with her? Like, because mm. my brother and my siblings were all interested in other fields. So I got involved that way. I, I decided that I wanted to be involved. And I, th- yeah, she kind of groomed me along the way without my consent as a kid. <laughs> when, yeah. when parents drag you and you're like, hey, do this and do that. And I ended up realizing that I'm actually good at doing all yeah. of this. 
One thing I do ask everybody, given that trajectory over the last what, eight years or so, is there a book or play or poem or a work like that that has been particularly influential for you over that time? Not books, but people. I've always been inspired by the strength of black women, whether in the States or in Africa, to mm -hmm. heal themselves, to also heal other people, create space for other people, hold people, sometimes even to their own detriment, you know. Is there a pivotal figure for you? My grandmother. My grandmother was the real matriarch, the real yeah. OG. She, uh, She's she's the kind of person that left Mandera at twelve years old so she could run away from her uncle's house to back to her parents because he wanted to marry her off mm. <laughs> and along the way met a lion and somehow survived. Yeah. Um and she's not formally educated. Um She's still with us? Yes, she is. She's mm. in Mombasa. She, she has great stories to yeah. share about <laughs> about Kenya from you know she she, does up, she know what a podcast is <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> no she'll probably give you a nickname and all that um, she, yeah if you sit with her and you like press record and don't tell her what you're doing then you also, have <laughs> it might be a bit complicated to explain but I'm happy to just uh... <laughs> yeah yeah that's what I do because if you tell her then she just shuts up and then doesn't share anything yeah um, but yeah she yeah, she's 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 very. Thank like my mom. She's very inspirational. The fact mm. that she um, also made sure that my grandfather educated his daughters because he had only one son. She was like, "Yo, you have mm. to do something about this." And if it wasn't for that, then I wouldn't be here today. So, or yeah, Kenya would be a mess right now. I don't know. It would be <laughs> would without be, the grandmothers. <laughs> without the grandmothers, yeah. So yeah. You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.